Oh, Romans 8. We're looking at verses 31 through 39 is our goal. But first, let's just do a little bit of review. All right, so we did our introduction to the book of Romans. It's written by the Apostle Paul. Remember that? <clears throat> written to the church, the saints that are at Rome. Written to them. He talks a lot about the gospel in the book of Romans. So does anybody remember, it's been a while since we reviewed, what is the key theme of the book of Romans? Key theme? Okay, that is part of the key theme, justification through faith. Justification, that's a big word, isn't it? Remember, what is justification? There it is, declared righteous. So, Righteousness, specifically the righteousness of God, is the key theme of the book of Romans. The righteousness of God, we could add a phrase to that, the righteousness of God seen in the gospel. That's the key theme of the book of Romans, is God's righteousness. And so we've looked, we are just, Lord willing, tonight we are going to finish um, our, our third main point in the book of Romans. Remember, they each begin with S. What was point number one? Hey, if you're in the back row and you're having trouble focusing, we've got space up here for your chairs in the front, so help yourselves. All right. So what was the first F? S, Dominic. Sin. That's it. Sin, it's our need for righteousness. Remember, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We have a problem. Our greatest need in life is forgiveness for our sins. We have sinned against a holy God. We have committed crime against heaven. And there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. So we need God. We need righteousness from outside of ourselves. Jonathan? Uh, I was just waiting until the other S. The next S? Give us number two. Salvation. That's it. Number two is salvation. If we have a sin problem and we cannot deliver or rescue ourselves, we need a Savior. That's point number two. Chapter 3, verse 21 through the end of chapter 5 is salvation. Christ's gift of righteousness. Righteousness, right standing before God, is a gift. It's not something that we could earn. It's only merited through Christ, through his perfect life, through his substitutionary death. That means he died in our place through his burial, resurrection, ascension. Because of all that Jesus Christ has done on our behalf, he can be our savior, our rescuer, our deliverer. But a gift cannot be earned. A gift is something that must be received. And the way that we receive the gift of righteousness, of salvation, is through faith. Remember our acronym for faith? What was it? For sake. That's it. Forsaking all, I trust him. In other words, I forsake every other way to heaven. My good works can't save me. Going to church can't save me. Baptism can't save me. Doing all sorts of good stuff or anything else. None of those things can save us. Only Jesus Christ can save us. So faith is reception of God's gift, and then it's our pledge of allegiance to Christ. It's, I will be loyal to you. Um, remember... Remember at the end of, yet not I, but Christ through me, with every breath I long to follow Jesus. That's what faith says. It's that my life is not my own, it's for Christ. 
So salvation, we talked about justification through faith. And then our third S, John? Uh, sanctification. Sanctification, that's it. And sanctification, Pastor actually talked about it in his message uh, this past week, if you were there. It was really a good sermon in the word saints at the beginning of Ephesians. It's the idea of being set apart, being set apart from our sin and being set apart unto God or dedicated to him. In other words, going with the righteousness theme, if sin is our need for righteousness, salvation is Christ's gift of righteousness, sanctification is our growth in righteousness. Because none of us are what we ought to be. We all still struggle with sin. We all fail. We all are wicked. And yet there is a growth process from our salvation that hopefully, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're not who you once were. And hopefully, in the future, you will continue to grow. That's what um, Zach's adoration was. Um, Every day, each day, he will renew me. It's good. So sanctification, and we are bringing sanctification to a close here at the end of Romans chapter 8. Remember the context? Romans 8 has been teaching us that the Spirit begins to change our nature from the inside out, helping us begin to desire the things that we ought to. For instance, like, we ought to desire the Word of God, but the Spirit changes us to want to read and know God's Word. The Spirit is changing our nature from the inside out. Um, he, the Spirit also intercedes on our behalf. Remember, Paul talked about how sometimes we don't know what to pray for, but the Spirit helps us in that weakness. He intercedes. He takes our request to God even when we don't know what to pray. Um, and then, most recently, we discussed what some would call the golden chain of salvation. Remember, he says, We know God works all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And then he launches into a short discussion on what it means to be called. And he backs up in time. He says, whom God, excuse me, foreknew, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son. And then those whom he predestinated, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So then we get here to this section and look with me at Romans chapter 8. Look down to verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? The things he's just discussed. What more is there to say? Is essentially what he's saying. If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay any char- anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are all killed all the day long. We are accounted for sheep as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Adrian? 
Um, when he when it says Christ's intercession, so when we pray, mm-hmm. so that um, so some people I know think that it is you just talk to straight straight to the God the Father. But this this Bible verse specifically says that um, Jesus Christ, you talk to Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ gives it to the Father, right? That's a good question. So look back at the verse. <clears throat> Verse 34, it's Christ who died, yea, rather, that's risen again, who's even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So think through that. Paul is answering the question of, at the beginning of verse 34, who is he that condemns? Remember, back at the beginning of chapter 8, maybe just look back there, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. So that's important. He's answering the question of who is he who condemns? Because essentially Paul's saying, with all that God has done for us, it's clear that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, God is on your side. He's in your corner. He's your defender. So who could be against us? But then he asks the question, what specifically would be against us? Remember chapter 6 and chapter 7? He dealt with how we are freed from, what's chapter 6? Do you remember? Freed from, freed from sin. And then he ch- talked about, in chapter 7, freed from the, from the law. So sin, our sin against God brought condemnation. The law and our failure to live up to God's righteous standard in the law brought cr- condemnation. Those are what was bringing condemnation. So now Paul says, who is he who condemns? Who is he who condemns? Well, good question, Paul. He already answered it, didn't he? There's no condemnation if you're in Christ. Sin can't bring condemnation. The law can't bring condemnation. And that means no one can bring condemnation against those who are in Christ. But continuing, he talks about what Christ has done to deal with that condemnation. Christ died. Remember, he died on the cross for our sins. We were the ones who deserved to die, but Christ died instead. But Jesus did not stay dead. It says, yea, rather, that is risen again. Don't forget when you talk about Christ's death to also bring up his resurrection. Because if Jesus were a dead savior, how good of a savior would he be? Not a very good one. Because he couldn't even save himself from death. But Jesus did. He conquered death. And therefore he can offer life, eternal life to us. But then it says, not only did he die and he's raised again, but it says he's at the right hand of God. That's a title of authority, of power. God is literally ruler of all of creation. And who's his second in command? Well, it's Jesus Christ sitting at God's right hand. But then it says, think also, if he's at God's right hand, that also talks about not just authority, but proximity. What's proximity? How close you are to someone. Exactly. The closest person to God the Father is God the Son, sitting right next to him. Well, that's interesting, because with that context then, it says that Jesus intercedes for us. He also makes intercession for us. So first of all, we talked about it, but let's remember, what is intercession? What does it mean to make intercession? Adrian? Takes it to um, the other person. 
Yeah. Yeah, they're a go-between. Exactly. A messenger who takes a message from one to the next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's similar to what the priests did for Old Testament Israel. Zach? So it also says he like, died for us for our condemnation. But the next verse says that uh, who is the person that like can separate us from God? Mm-hmm. So is it talking about two different people? Because the only people that can separate us from God is us. Like, from our, you know, sin. Yeah, so let's... Let's come to that. Let's answer first the question of intercession, and then let's start into that. Because what Paul does is he asks five questions here, and he piles them all up. And one commentator I read, he calls these the five unanswerable questions. It's kind of, kind of an interesting little title for this section, kind of thought-provoking. Intercession is essentially to submit a plea on behalf of another. In other words, so think of somebody that you might know who is very sick. In order to intercede on their behalf would be, I go and I talk to God and I ask God, God, would you please heal this person? That's what an intercessor does. It's someone who makes a plea or a request on behalf of another. And so that's what Jesus Christ does. And remember, we already talked, that's what the Spirit does. He intercedes for us. But now it's the the Son. Jesus Christ is interceding for us. So, what does that say about to whom we pray. Can we pray to Jesus? Absolutely. We could go and look at some other texts. I don't think that's what this text is saying, Adrian. I think what this text is saying is we make our requests to God, but then Jesus is our intercessor before the throne who says there's no condemnation. Look, I bled, I died, I rose, and now he stands there and he makes sure that God can hear our requests because He already paid our pardon. Primarily, we pray to the Father. Think Matthew 6. The disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. That's in the Luke account, but Matthew 6. It's the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus says, pray like this. Our Father who's in heaven. Primarily, we pray to the Father. But there are times when we can pray to the Son and to the Spirit as well. Yeah, and we could go and look at that, but we're going to run out of lots of time. All right, Ezekiel. So it's like in wartime, there's neutral countries. Switzerland, Switzerland kind of other than Jesus isn't neutral he's on our side that's what this is saying Jesus is for us the enemies have nothing they can bring against us well I don't know about Switzerland that's okay but I know Jesus, that's what the whole passage is about. All right, Dom, you had your hand up, and then we better get back to this text if we're going to make it through very much. Jesus is like our attorney. Our, um, God is the um, judge, but then Satan is our prosecutor, mm-hmm. and then the Holy Spirit's our witness. There you go. I like it, so put it in the courtroom setting. Okay, back to verse 31. Paul essentially asks, what shall we say to these things? What more can be said? If he's already talked about our sin, that we deserved condemnation, and that Jesus died in our place, rose from the dead, and offers us salvation, and that once we're saved, he's continuing to sanctify us and change us, and eventually he will glorify us, what more needs to be said? And then he asks the follow-up. 
If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, what's the rhetorical answer to that rhetorical question? No one. If God's for us, no one else can stand against us. As 1 John 4 says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Speaking of Satan. God is the ultimate power. No one can stand against him. So if God is on our side, there's no other enemy that could go against us. That's pretty cool. And then he answers that question by saying in verse 32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Okay, who is the one who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all? God, the Father. He didn't withhold his own son. We had a sin problem, and God met it by giving his own son, Jesus, to die in our place. We were his enemies. God didn't withhold his own son. So Paul says, will he not also give with him, will he not also freely give us all things? In other words, think Philippians, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Think Psalm 84, no good thing will he withhold to those who walk uprightly. God's going to provide for our earthly needs, but also, remember that inheritance that Paul's been talking about? God's going to bring his sanctifying work in our lives to completion, and one day we will be we will receive the inheritance along with Jesus Christ. The inheritance of glory, like we were talking about. Um, But then, verse 33, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Elect, that's the idea of God's chosen. Those who have been chosen. Remember, those who are foreknown, predestinated, called, justified, glorified. God has chosen those who are his. And those who are his have also chosen him by faith. So you see this concept. I know we could spend a lot of time thinking on that. But God's chosen. Who can lay a charge against them? Who can say, this person's guilty? Well, that's a good question. Aren't we all guilty? Yeah. But he answers the question with another statement. It is God that justifies. Remember, declared righteous. God has declared us righteous. That means not guilty, and he's given us Christ's righteousness. So who's going to lay a charge against us? Nothing will stick because Jesus paid it all. We're guilty, yeah, absolutely, but Jesus took our guilt. Boy, that's beautiful. But then he asks another question. Who is he that condemns? Well, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ because Christ died, he rose, he sits at God's right hand, and he makes intercession on our behalf. So then Paul asks, verse 35, so who will separate us from the love of Christ? The big idea is God loves us. He's shown us that abundantly through Jesus Christ. Justification by faith. He's shown it to us through his spirit who indwells us and changes us and intercedes for us. So then the question is who could separate us from the love of Christ? Exactly. That's the, he asks this rhetorical question and then he lists off some stuff. Well, can tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or even nakedness, or peril, or sword. He lists off fear of danger, trouble, persecution. We're being persecuted or afflicted for our faith. Or even, not just that, but peril, or even the sword. Getting our head chopped off for Jesus Christ. Can any of that separate us from Christ? Hmm. And then he quotes Psalm 44. He says, as it is written, for your sake we're killed all the day long, we're counted as sheep for the slaughter. Paul gives the idea, 
there's present danger for those who are followers of Jesus Christ. And we know that many Christians through the centuries have been martyred for their faith. We don't face as much fear of danger and especially of death as Christians where we live right now, but there are Christians all around this world right now who are facing danger and fear of death, etc. But he says, even those things, can they separate us from Christ's love? And then finally, Paul answers it, verse 34, sorry, verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Because Jesus is the victor, we also partake in the victory. We're more than conquerors. Isn't that cool? He could have just said we're conquerors. But he like, he can't say enough. So he says we're more than conquerors. That's pretty cool. And then he answers it. He finishes verse 38 and 39. I'm persuaded. I'm convinced. Neither death nor life. So nothing in this life and nothing in death. Nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. So that means spiritual wickedness. Satan and his demons. Nor things present right now. Nor things to come. Nothing right now or in the future. Nor height nor depth. So not distance nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, the answer to his question, what could separate us from the love of God in Christ? Nothing. No one. There's absolutely nothing that could separate us from Christ's love. No matter how bad we are, no matter how hard the enemies try, no matter what, there are... We are inseparable from Christ's love. Isn't that cool? That's amazing. Go ahead, Dom. When um, verse 37 says we are more than conquerors, mm-hmm. what pops into my mind is um, we're peaceful conquerors. And then, when mm. that is, and then from that, my mind, my mind thinks of Alexander the Great when he conquered Jerusalem, but the priests actually came out to meet him and he said, okay, well... The idea of peaceful conquerors. There you go. I think conquer is an understatement. No kidding. With all of this that Christ has done, conquer is, that's an understatement. Paul couldn't even find a good enough word for it, huh? That's cool. So realize, just, I don't remember who said this adoration. No fate I dread. I know I am forgiven. Is that Alex? Is it? I, I think so. That's, that's amazing. There's nothing that we have that we need to legitimately fear because ultimately, there's nothing that could separate us from God's love. Nothing that could separate us from Christ's love. Not our sin, because God loved us while we were still sinners. And there's no other enemy that because God has justified us, declared us righteous, there's nothing else that could bring condemnation because Jesus paid it all. All right, so why don't we close in prayer there?